Well, good morning. Just a, an interesting thing here. Talking about how we live our Christian lives and how we, as we go into the world, what people around us think of us as Christians. This is by a man called Major Ian Thomas, who used to be well known quite a few years ago. He says, Christianity may be your hobby. If the way you live your life as a Christian can be explained in terms of you, what have you to offer to the man who lives next door? The way he lives his life can be explained in terms of him. And as far as he is concerned, you happen to be religious, but he is not. Christianity may be your hobby, but it is not his. And there is nothing about the way that you practice it which strikes him as at all remarkable. There is nothing about you which leaves him guessing, and nothing commendable of which he does not feel himself equally capable without the inconvenience of becoming a Christian. I wonder does that apply to my life or to your life as to what people think of you as a Christian. And just with that thought, let's uh, carry on. Today we will be gathering round the Lord's table. Fifty days after the death of our Lord and Saviour, the group of believers were gathered together in Jerusalem in the upper room, waiting as Jesus had commanded them ten days previously at his ascension out on Mount Olivet. They'd been led out to the Mount of Olives by our Lord, <clears throat> and as he had uh, ascended to heaven, they returned to Jerusalem, and it says they returned with great joy, and they met daily for prayer and supplication, and to wait. To wait for what? Jesus had said, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. He had promised them that the Comforter would be sent. He said, if I go not away, it was imperative that he went away in order for the Comforter to come to them. And he told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. For he said, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And I'm sure as they waited, another day, another day, nothing happened. I often wonder what they expected. What was their expectation as they waited? What was this promise of the Father? How was the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, going to come? What was this baptism of the Holy Ghost promised to all believers? What was it? And Paul expounds on this in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. He says, For by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body? By one spirit we are all 
baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. They waited in accordance with the words of their master. About 120 people were told, including Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. They all gathered with one accord in prayer and supplication and with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, and others. Another thing I thought of as I was like 120 people. Jesus had been ministering for three years. There had been many people touched by his ministry. And yes, only 120 people were gathered waiting for the promise of the Father. We all know the story so well of the gift of the Holy Ghost coming to dwell with believers on this earth. Jesus went away. He prayed to his Father to send the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in the hearts of men. And then also, when he came, he would convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, the rightness of things, and concerning judgment. Judgment that was coming on this world and coming to those who rejected the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there in Jerusalem at Pentecost the church was born. And since that day, the day of Pentecost, there has been one body. A wonderful unity of believers which began at Pentecost. And you know it still exists today. The picture of a living body is used by the Holy Spirit in Scripture to describe this church, this living organism, the body of Christ of which he is head and we are the various members of that one body. It's a picture which everybody can understand, a body without a head would be a useless thing. But we have the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're members of that one body, a picture that we all can easily understand. Today, especially, we see many organizations seeking to unite the various man-made churches and sects into one body. We hear talk about it all the time. The coming of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, one body of believers was made. In Ephesians 4, if you look at Ephesians 4, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, 
<coughs> there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. And if you look down through that passage in Ephesians uh, 4, you'll see there are lots of ones. But just verse 4, there is one body. One body. That's important. The verses which preceded this, verses 1 to 3, are interesting verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation, of the profession, wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have a vocation. We have a profession. And that profession is that we are called of God. And he says... I want you to live up to that. I was thinking of this. We Look at that television program, University Challenge. And when the, the teams are, are uh, telling what, who they are and what they do at university, quite often they'll say, Joe Soap from Huddersfield reading history. Or something else reading science. Our profession as Christians should be reading the Word and being led by the Word of God. That's our profession. That's our calling, our vocation. And we're told to walk worthy of that vocation. You know, we expect our judges, for instance, uh, to live lives worthy of their profession. We used to expect politicians to live lives worthy of those who make laws whereby we should live, that they would keep the laws as well. But they have failed miserably. They didn't live up to their profession, their vocation. And in the same way, Paul is encouraging Christians here to walk worthy of their Lord, to walk in humbleness of mind. Humbleness of mind. Having a humble opinion of oneself. As Strong says, Strong says in his uh, translations, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. There's nothing big about us in our natural state for us to get worked up about we should walk in humbleness of mind. Romans 12 verse 3, Paul writing again, he says, For I say through the grace given to me that everyone, to everyone who is among you, to everyone, not only some people, but to all of us, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but set your mind to be right-minded, to be right-minded, people now we talk about it's not in his right mind 
But as Christians we should be right minded. Even as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So we have to walk in humbleness of mind. goes on to say, walking in meekness, meekness, mildness, gentleness. You know, we live in a very rough world. You only have to listen to people talking. You only have to look at the way they behave. We live in a noisy, rough, vulgar world. People are looking for those who will walk in mildness. God is looking for people, Christians, who will walk in gentleness and meekness. And then it says, and long-suffering. Also translated, patience. We're impatient these days. Something has to happen immediately all the time. We live in an instant society. We've got instant coffee, instant this. But God says, I want you Christians to be patient, to be long-suffering. You know, this is very practical teaching that Paul was saying here to the Ephesians. Do I, do I take it to heart? forbearing one another when I was looking at this uh, I was tempted to put down uh, putting up with one another putting up with one another but that's not it I'm sure our Lord would never have said to his disciples you have to put up with that person while he was down here on earth it's to bear the, the thought is to bear with them. Galatians 6.2, Paul puts this over much clearer. He says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have to forbear with them. Put, go alongside them and bear their burdens. I think we're called to do that. Not just to put up with someone. But you know, it's verse 3 that struck my attention when I was looking at this. Endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Note it says, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Not to to make or organise the unity, but to keep the unity. You see, man seeks to manipulate with his ideas this unity. To form churches with man-made rules based on tradition, liturgy, membership, extra-scriptural practices. In order to form a unity. But you know, the unity of the Spirit was started at Pentecost. And has always existed. And always will exist exist, until the coming of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That unity is there. Paul writing to Titus in Titus 2.12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Man says, we must bring all Christians together. They use human means and want to organize something. They always like, people like to do things. They won't accept the fact by faith that unity exists in true believers. But they make organizations. And having an organization is not the same as having a living organism. The church is a living organism. We thank God. He's made it clear that there is one body. It has existed since Pentecost and still exists today. The important thing is to live in accordance with this truth. Man has changed the rules for those seeking to enjoy this God-given unity. Man says, it's by baptism that we join this body. Man says, it's by the tradition of the church that we join this body. Man says, it's by joining a church that this body, this unity will be formed. Man says that we cannot join this body unless we are baptized and receive the Eucharist. Man's, man says all these things. God says, unless ye be converted and turn from your sins, that they may be blotted out. That's how we join this body. Since Pentecost, those who truly repent and receive Christ as their Lord and Saviour are members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Become part of his body and added to that church through the Holy Spirit now those who are truly members of the body already have this unity it exists and has done since Pentecost and Jesus our Lord and Saviour is the one who preserves that unity of the body and he wants us to walk worthy of that body in unity with fellow believers. Not to contrive unity with all those teaching errors but to maintain that unity which he alone can preserve. Unity is there. But this unity has to be maintained to keep the unity in the bond of peace. We're instructed that we should endeavour by all means to keep that unity. Not a false unity, but a unity based on truth. The New Testament not only teaches the necessity of contending for the faith but it constantly 
encourages us to separate ourselves from those who deny that truth and deny that faith. There's no need for any Christian to be in ignorance as to his stand and his position before God and man. The word of God is clear as to his instruction, what God wants us to do. Paul write, uh, Jude writing says, Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. One translation says, I am compelled to send you this letter of warning. You have a battle to fight over the faith that was handed down once for all to the saints. There's a battle to keep this unity, this true unity. 2 John 9 to 11 Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And there came any, if there come any unto you, if anybody comes in that doesn't have the doctrine which is recorded in Scripture, he's very strong on this. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. And if you do that, you're partaker of his evil deeds. Oh, that's all pushing it over the top a little bit. That's what the Holy Spirit says through John. And that old verse, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath unrighteousness with half the believers with, with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? What agreement hath the temple of, God, temple of God with idols? And we can see as we look around the world today, lots of these churches seeking that unity are idol worshippers. They have strayed away from the truth. And they're the ones who do the most talking about wanting unity. The scriptures are clear. 1 John 4, 1. Try them. Romans 16, verse 17. Mark them that cause divisions. Titus 1.13, rebuke them. Second John verse 10, receive them not. Romans 16.17, avoid them. Second Timothy 3 verse 5, from such turn away. Let us keep the unity in truth. Now, as members of that body, our Lord left us two ordinances to keep. Baptism of believers and the Lord's Supper. Two things. You know, we look around today and we are perhaps confused by the many ideas and man-made theories that this simple command has spawned. What does scripture say? The Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, communion, 
In the Gospels we have the supper instituted by our blessed Lord before he went to Calvary. For instance, in Luke 22, verse 19, we read these words. He took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, Paul, when he was writing in Corinthians, the Corinthian church had gone astray in many details. And so, in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a warning. Verse 20, I say, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. And that applies on a, a level when we look at the practices of churches, a lot of what they do are so contrary to the word of God that we should have no fellowship with them. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. We turn to the revelation given to Paul and he in turn passed it on to the church for our enlightenment and for our edification. We must be careful when we come to the Lord's table that we come in all humbleness and with our hearts prepared to meet with the Lord at his table. It is his table. Here's a little hymn we used to sing years ago. Gathered to thy name, Lord Jesus, gathered here with one accord. Thine own self we own among us, faithful to thy promised word. May our eyes on thee, blessed Saviour, rest with one unceasing gaze, and our hearts with thee enraptured overflow with songs of praise. As we wait in thine own presence, brought by thee to God, so hot, so nigh as we solemnly remember thou for us didst deign to die may our souls bow that down before thee who didst bear our every sin and in hallowed sweet communion here below thy praise begin we come to his table we are guests at his table. It's not a time to request things. It's a time to worship and praise. All the agony which he suffered for you and for me. When we see him in the garden in his agony of blood at thy grace we are confounded holy spotless Lamb of God. When we see thee as the victim 
bound to the accursed tree. At thy grace we are confounded. All our suffering born, all our all our sins are born by thee. It's not just right, but that's it, it he suffered, he bled, he died. It's his death that we have come to remember. And now we turn, following on from that, to First Corinthians eleven and verse twenty three. And Paul is writing here I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Just as he had explained in Luke that Jesus took bread, Paul had this divine revelation. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. And this is the important. <clears throat> for as oft as ye eat this bread, and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. A few verses previous to this, Paul had criticized the Corinthians for their lax attitude in coming to the Lord's table. They were coming with their natural desires, eating enjoying themselves and so he reminds them of this revelation how that a man should examine himself before coming to the Lord's table the Lord's Supper now this this passage in, in Corinthians is a special revelation that Paul was given and it was the final one in relation to the Lord's Supper in that respect, it is important. We're not remembering the Lord in any other way at the communion service other than at his death. The bread is a symbol of his body broken at Calvary and given for me. The wine of his precious blood poured out at Calvary for me. Verse 26 again. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. It is through the death of our Lord that our salvation was accomplished. The veil of the temple was ripped apart, giving man access to God through our great high priest as out on Calvary. The Lord shouted, it is finished. And access to God was made by his death. He had completed 
the sacrifice of himself before a just and holy God who was well pleased with his son and through his death sin and Satan had been defeated and the veil was ripped apart what a wonderful picture for the people in those days to see that the, the veil which kept man away from God was now ripped apart by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ you do show forth the Lord's death till he come O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory the sting of death death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because of his death therefore in Romans we read Romans 8 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit we have been freed how by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and that is the whole principle of coming together to remember the Lord in his death death where is thy sting Satan has been defeated sin has been judged at Calvary because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because he died we come this morning to worship him to give him thanks for dying for me out there amongst the hills my saviour died pierced by those cruel nails was crucified Lord Jesus thou hast done all this for me may we each one say henceforth I will live only for thee